Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. And save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up at Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com. Try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Oh, hello there. Sorry, I am just a little bleary-eyed trying to orient myself ever since I opened a certain translucent blue bag sent to me by the New York Times, maybe to you too. I've been living in a state of virtual reality. So this, where I am now right now, this is reality reality. I think I like virtual reality. In reality reality, I whip my head around and I do see stuff behind me. But I expect to see stuff behind me. In virtual reality, it's more like, holy crap, there's some stuff behind me. I actually loved the virtual reality viewer the New York Times shipped. It's just some cardboard. You tuck your iPhone inside. It is the most powerful blending of the space age and the unexceptional since Tang or perhaps since the Star Wars prequels. But I weep for my medium, or I did weep for my medium, the podcast, radio, audio. So Andrea and I have been talking, and luckily we got Google to come on board. Well, in a manner of speaking, we Googled Kroger, and I went to a Kroger, and I found a brown paper bag, and that's what you should do too. So here's what you do. You keep your earbuds in, you put that brown paper bag over your head, and come with me as the GIST presents Virtual Podality. Actually... Just like the New York Times, we're going to talk about refugees. Really, just one refugee. Tom Petty's refugee. Let's hear that. So not having to live like a refugee. Like all Tom Petty songs, the title is the chorus. I love Tom Petty for this. You never have to wonder what the title of a Tom Petty song is. Hey, what's that one Tom Petty song where it doesn't want to be done like that? Yeah, that was Don't Do Me Like That. And let me move over here in virtual podality. Let me move further away as I ask you this question. What's that Tom Petty song about learning to fly? Oh, yeah. It's called Learning to Fly. Very unpopular college course, subtext and hidden meanings in Tom Petty lyrics. Great thing about Tom Petty, all his songs, all the song titles, they're the exact chorus, without exception. Another cool thing about Learning to Fly, very cool song, because after every line, you can either say the words, Learning to Fly, let's play some of that, Learning to Fly, or you could just repeat the last line. Ain't got wings. 
Learning to fly is the hardest thing. The hardest thing. Ooh, and that is virtual podality. You can remove the Kroger bag now. On the show today, I dissect the particular frog that was Donald Trump on SNL. And speaking of attention whores, or at least pay attention, dot, 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 we've got prostitutes, our prostitutes. It's our little niche. You know that feeling you get when things are done with just the click of a mouse? The feeling that says it's 2005 and I do most things on a computer. But what? There's a couple of things you just can't do on a computer. One of them is go to the post office right wrong because of stamps.com. Forget the post office. Take that idea. Put it out of your mind or compartmentalize it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to realize that stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. And you can give yourself any position you want in the post office. You could be the supervisor, the hard-ass supervisor who doesn't let Clarence get any time off to see his grandkids graduate. You could be that guy. You could be the kind-hearted middle manager who's always, you know, giving Gladys a shoulder to cry on. But what you can really do is buy and print official U.S. postage on any letter or package using your computer or printer. Then you give it to the postman who, as manager of the post office, maybe you hired. Maybe you're agitating to fire. But, you know, unions. Anyway, you give it to the postman. He'll take it to the post office. She'll take it to the post office. You printed it yourself. I'm going to tell you about a special offer. You go to stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST for a four-week trial, a $110 bonus offer. It includes postage and a digital scale. Really, don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. What better place to witness German hookers of the post-World War I in between World War II, the Weimar Republic. What better place to see them than Los Angeles? My God, Los Angeles has a cornerstone on all pornography, it would seem. But is it pornography? It's kind of disturbing. This new show is at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and here to talk about it is Mary Lane. She's the European art correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. She comes and talks to us about art. So it's words. It's the spoken word about the visual art Hey, Mary, how you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is your connection to this show other than being a uh, globe-trotting art lover? I mean, I first started uh, as an international correspondent covering prostitutes for the Associated Press and the economic effects of the year crisis on them. So I've always really been interested in prostitution and the women who do it by choice and the women who feel forced to do it and the economic effects of you know, the global market on their daily jobs. So that was, you know, really how I started getting interested in German hookers. And then the second pillar is... That I'm writing a book yes. about art in the pre-World War II time and then also in World War II and afterwards. And, you know, much of that has to do with Hitler's view of art, but also just what artists were up to at the time and how it was really, you know, an amazing time when artists were, to a certain extent, acting as journalists and going into brothels and going out on seedy streets and into nightclubs and essentially reporting what they saw in paintings. So this art, you know, the Weimar Republic, 1919 to 1933, this art would have been art that Hitler was seeing, that Hitler was reacting to, probably that because Hitler was a sick bastard, that was causing some uh, sturm and drang within Hitler. Yeah, Hitler essentially, he, he felt after World War One as did many people, actually, that Germany had, you know, lost its way and gone awry. 
And, you know, while many people felt that this was because Germany had gotten into World War One and was becoming overly militaristic, he felt actually that this was very much because there were degenerates. So that would be prostitutes, gays, liberal women, female intellectuals who were being secretly propelled by Jews with the purpose of screwing Germany over, essentially. And when we talked about the Musée d'Orsay prostitution exhibit, this idea was in the air. This is not something that, you know, Hitler had to concoct. No, I mean, it was in the air. I mean, it's still in the air. I think that if you look at the way that, you know, prostitutes in America are treated nowadays, it's, you know, even the people who think that prostitution is you know, wrong, they focus much more on punishing these women as opposed to maybe getting them help. And so I think Hitler, you know, having, you know, Hitler's view was very much this sort of eugenics idea that there was a certain gene in, you know, Jews or in homosexuals that made them essentially animals, that he viewed prostitutes very much that way as well. And I think no one would accuse Hitler of being logical, but it is in many ways very illogical that he would think that because the reason that there were so many prostitutes at that time was because there were so many unemployed people, and this was one of the few things that they could sell. And so at the time in Berlin, and even nowadays, there was way many more prostitutes than demand, so the prices were very rock bottom, actually. So a lot of what these artists were portraying was, you know, this very seedy underbelly of Berlin. So you have someone like Otto Dix in in this one work called The Salon from 1921 that's really a fascinating piece people should Google because it showed prostitutes of different ages. So it, you know, it showed women who were, you know, older and, you know, clearly not enthusiastic about being prostitutes but felt they had nothing better to do. And in the corner, there's one woman who's bent over and, you know, clutching her body and in a way trying to protect herself from everyone's leering eyes. So it was very much a a time of misery for a lot of those women. Um, You know, at the same time, though, there was some diversity in in the way that women were portrayed in you know the Weimar Republic as prostitutes. So you have someone like Rudolf Schlichter who did a piece in about 1927-1928 called Dominia Mea, which is a woman in this gorgeous seafoam green dress, and she's wearing these stilettoed black boots and digging her heel into a guy wearing a suit on the floor. So you you have this idea of female sexuality as also being you know a very proactive way of expressing anger at misogyny, uh, which Hitler also didn't like because I've been reading Mein Kampf, slogging through that for for my book. Uh, It's not a page turner. (laughs) It is not a page turner. (laughs) He needed an editor and it is way too long. Hitler's art is better than Hitler's writing. I would say. And Hitler's art is devoid of any human touch. But Hitler's writing is... No, his writing is really boring, but I think my, my... quote unquote favorite quote uh, in it is when he said that, you know, women were really passive in marriages and shouldn't be expected to have any kind of sexual desire at all. And so... What would he know about that, by the way, at the time? At the time... I mean, his parents, like, his dad died when he was four, right? So he never really got to observe their marriage. Hitler's father died when he was fairly young. Hitler was, by the accounts of his siblings, the most physically abused in his family. So there was one instance that his brother remembered uh, where Hitler was beaten so badly they thought he had died. He just blacked out. And his mother was very doting, very kind, but she ended up dying when he was just trying to start out his career. She ended up dying of cancer. And at that time, doctors thought that, you know, if they essentially burned people's skin, that it would help with the cancer. So he was sitting there while his mom was writhing in pain. And it was this very 
weird, traumatizing time for him, and he ended up always idolizing his mother and revering his mother, but didn't really have um, active sexual relations with anyone else. I mean, even with Ava Brown, they slept in separate rooms. But my point is he's saying what marriages should be, and he has no honest conception of marriage, of anything. He, he wasn't in one. He didn't really see a functioning one. No, uh, yeah. he didn't, and he very much believed that the purpose of a marriage should be to create children to strengthen your country. Yeah. It wasn't really supposed to be a human relationship. So this art in uh, in this exhibit at the uh, L.A. County Museum, is it? does some of it celebrate, like, uh, the musical and play cabaret? Does some of it celebrate the libertine times, or is it mostly an expose? Is it mostly a criticism? Curiously enough, I think the female strength that comes out, you know, other than the Rudolf Schlichter, where the woman is basically beating the crap out of that guy in the suit, uh, you have someone named uh, Jean Mammon, uh, who was a, a woman, and she depicted a lot of very strong, sexually confident women. Uh, so there was, you know, paintings that she did of she's got one of a, a woman holding a hunting rifle and, you know, she's just looking pretty badass and happy with herself. And there's a cabaret in the background that's full of, you know, women who look like they want to be there and they're very happy with their sexuality. So I think, you know, the 20s were a confusing time because, you know, on the one hand, you did have people who were forced into prostitution. But on the other hand, you know, the sexual liberation that was happening was something that a lot of women were genuinely excited about. And it was really the first time in their culture when they had been told that women could enjoy sex. The Hitler came down on artists even explicitly um targeted them even before, I mean, he hated Jews, but he couldn't really uh, target them via policy before he really went after artists. And, you know, and some artists began to feel persecuted by Hitler and his rise to power even before Kristallnacht. So it's all tied up to the fact that he was rejected to art school. But art was a big deal and Hitler hated it. And what these artists were doing was causing a giant, this wasn't necessarily under the radar in Weimar Germany. Something that people really have to remember uh, is that the, that you know Hitler had a lot of support for cracking down on these artists. They were considered incredibly controversial. Their work, even nowadays, even for someone like me who has seen you know hundreds and hundreds of sexual works of art, these are among the most explicit that you'll see, even compared to artists nowadays. Actually, most artists nowadays are tame compared to these. And you know, I think that Hitler. One incredibly fascinating thing about Hitler is that he viewed himself first and foremost as an artist, and he expressly said, including to, you know, say, Britain's diplomat shortly before the war, he told them, my ultimate goal is as an artist working in politics to make the world safe for artists and to make the world safe for creativity to thrive as a version of nationalism. And even in the bunker, he was sleeping with art books in his bed. And his, you know, on his very last day, he told his secretary to write down that it should be made clear to everyone that he had always considered himself an artist and he was just trying to make the world a better place for his version of creativity, which you could not disagree with. What happened to a lot of these artists? Did they escape Germany? Did Hitler round them up and persecute them? Well, you have, you know, there were very, very few female artists. And, and one of the sad thing among many is that uh, women artists at this time were just starting to get to a level of creativity that we're only just starting to see again in the past 15 years. And so, you know, you had an artist like, say, Anita Ray 
who killed herself shortly after Hitler, you know, came to power because she just saw no hope. And a lot of Hitler's uh, rabble-rousers were bullying her. A church that had had a triptych of hers in it took the triptych down. And she was technically Jewish, but she had been baptized. She had been raised Christian. She wasn't even really that aware that she had been Jewish. And then you have other artists, uh, say, Emil Nolde, whose career was stalling at the time that Hitler came to power, and Goring actually really liked his art. And so he ended up collaborating with Hitler and denouncing other artists so that he could further his own career. Then you did have some artists escape. And, of course, that's why uh, the art world capital transition from Paris to New York was a result of you know, artists fleeing over here to New York. And the sad thing about that, though, is you have an artist like George Gross who left very early because he saw that this was coming and moved to America with his wife, and his art just stalled here. You know, he was, he, his best works were in this Weimar period where he was depicting the horrible conditions that veterans were living in and, you know, wounded, maimed soldiers whom, you know, Hitler very much was like, well, you know, I only believe in the the good type of veterans who don't get yeah, maimed. It didn't fit it didn't fit in with his narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so George Gross really thrived. Since, by and, the way, he was a wounded, at least unbelievably psychologically wounded veteran and didn't want to identify with that. Yeah. And he, purged the weakness from his life. He, yeah. It was very, you know, Gross was actually trying to expose a lot of this in a, in a journalistic way, almost to get better treatment for veterans. And Hitler would have none of it. He gross saw where things were going and came here to New York uh, and started painting really pleasant things. And people didn't want to see these, you know, and it was very different. And he started drinking a lot. He ended up moving back to Germany after the war and just couldn't really find his place and couldn't figure out what to to draw and ended up uh, drinking himself to death and collapsing in his stairwell and dying. New Objectivity, Modern German Art in the Weimar Republic, 1919 to 1933, is the exhibit. It's at the L.A. County Museum of Art. And our guide, as always, was Mary Lane. Mary, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Two, three, you're done thinking about it, right? Because you got to get to your next meeting. Well, what if you had Citrix go to meeting? Because it's the smarter way to meet. Go to meeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are. And you could use, you could utilize any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Travel expenses? Nah. Hassle of traffic? Nah. You just join by clicking a link. No signups, no speed bumps. Turn on your webcam. Boom. And there you go. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're doing and you get on the same page. I'd like you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting and click on the Try It Free button. You do it now and you have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel. Let's kill a frog. Humor can be dissected, E.B. White said, as a frog can. But the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. But you, my friends, possess that scientific mind. And I know you're attracted to innards. Or, put another way, maybe you invested an hour and a half in the shambles that was Donald Trump hosting SNL, and you want to find a way to bring some meaning to it. Stipulation, it was unfunny, aggressively unfunny. Well, actually, I should say that Larry David, who is funny, 
was funny is Bernie Sanders. Although it is kind of weird that SNL's greatest political impressions rely on people who really, really, really look like with no makeup, the person they're impersonating, Tina Fey as Sarah Palin, Larry as Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's going to culminate in Senator Al Franken's impending presidential run where he's parodied by former SNL cast member Al Franken. Unless Joe Piscopo runs for Jersey City Council. So why was SNL so unfunny? There are many reasons. Now, some have said SNL's not funny because it's just never been funny. It hasn't been funny in years. Wrong. SNL in the Lorne Michaels era barely fluctuates in terms of funniness more than 20% up or down in any given year. Sometimes you have great cast members. Sometimes you have good or young cast members who haven't hit their stride. But think about from 1975 when SNL started, there's about 10,000 times as many sketch comedians and improvers. The talent pool is just so huge and SNL has established itself as the pinnacle. It just can't help but be funny. So it is mostly funny. But when it's not not funny. It's not funny in the same ways, which is to say it stops being about a particular vision of a funny person and starts being about what nominally funny people think the audience might think is funny. So that's one way it's not funny pandering. But the other big way that it's not funny is when it gets repetitive. Recurring characters, that's not the problem. It's when they recur by doing the same things. So good recurring characters, the church lady, Dieter from Sprockets, Ed Grimley, Gumby, Stefan, they get into, or in Stefan's case, describe different situations. Bad recurring characters. Killy, did you throw that milkshake? Sorry. It's not a funny character doing different things. It's a character doing the same thing, relying on the same punchline. It's almost like they forgot a principle of comedy. Repetition, of course, is going to be a problem with a comedy institution like Saturday Night Lives. But there is a line between the same kind of idea repeated from cast to cast, right? So you have Nick the Lounge Singer. To the Sweeney sisters. To Will Farrell and Anna Gasteyer, Marty and Bobby Culp. So it is funny to have the lounge version of pop songs. I get that. I allow that. But now take this joke from Weekend Update. Classic Gilda Radner as Emily Latilla. were just lovely. Now, if they only show violins after 10 o'clock at night, the little babies will all be asleep and they won't learn any music appreciation. Get it? She misunderstood the word hilariously back in 1976. Now here's Bobby Moynihan two years ago as Anthony Crispino. They're letting senior citizens get married now in New Jersey. What? Yep. Yeah, yeah. They're legalizing gray marriage. No, no, it's not. Yep. The That's gray mar- they legalize gay marriage. But I'm pretty sure it was gray marriage, though. <laughs> Get it? He misunderstood the word. I don't know. Maybe it just gets my ghost when they portray Italian-Americans who misunderstand worms. But I will forgive later Saturday Night Live. It is hard not to repeat when you're a 40-something-year-old institution. The bigger problem is when they repeat the same joke time after time within a year. So last night they did a music bit called Bad Girls. Now the joke there was they took everyday 
mundanities of domestic life and they overlaid the idioms of hardcore badass hip-hop artists. Uh, we only see full parties. Are all four of your members here? Oh, yeah, she's just in the bathroom. Fantastic. Right this way. The bathroom at her house. Uh... This was very reminiscent when earlier this year they had a musical bit called Teacher Snow Day when they took the everyday mundanities of being a school teacher and overlaid the idioms of hardcore badass hip-hop artists. That's right, it's a Teacher Snow Day! No kids, no books, full play! You think that we're home grading papers, but we're using them to smoke them gotcha papers. Man, kids want the day off? Get in line behind overworked teachers getting drunk, oh! Perhaps that reminded you of the music bit from six weeks prior called Office Christmas Party, where they took the everyday mundanities of the business world and overlaid the idioms of hardcore badass hip-hop artists. Let's turn this bitch up. Office Christmas Party. Office Christmas Party. Office Christmas Party. Shot go from payroll, a sort of dancing. Office Christmas Party. Jerry and Kathy are hitting it off. All of these videos featured slow-mo shots of flipping tables or throwing food, and they all had slow-mo moments of smashing office equipment or school equipment or furniture. Oh my God, it is the same joke. Now that is not why Donald Trump wasn't funny. He wasn't funny because the writers weren't brave, skillful, or tricky enough to actually stick it to Trump. It seemed more like gentle mockery, as one would offer at a company roast, than a real gutsy skewering. And you know what? At some point, the prospect of taking a Trump candidacy even a little seriously impedes the laughter. It impedes the laughter in a way that doesn't happen when Lindsay Lohan or Kim Kardashian or some other celebrity comes on and hosts, and it's a celebrity they usually skewer, but that celebrity pokes fun at himself or herself. Trump also didn't help by butchering his lines, but the bigger problem is that we don't really need to see that Donald Trump is a good sport who could laugh at himself. We need to see that from Sarah Palin. I don't know if she was great in her brief appearance. She was fine. John McCain, he killed it in his sustained hosting gig because he showed exactly that. He showed his sillier side. But Trump is all silliness. The joke that would have killed was showing him with a pure mastery of a nuanced policy position. But if humor depends on the upending of expectations, having Trump display self-regard and buffoonery does not a good joke make. And the only thing that killed on Saturday night was the frog. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi agrees that the waiting is the hardest part. But you know what else is hard? It's not even the instructions that are supposed to be read by anyone Danish or American. It's that little freaking tool they give you that looks like an S, but you can't get any leverage on the screw when you're trying to put the cabinet together. That's also pretty damn hard. Executive producer Andy Bowers, he's on board that the waiting is the hardest part. But you know what else is really bad? You never know if it's one, then the country code, or 01. And when if you're in a different country, is it 001? That's also pretty hard, too. The gist, yeah, sure. The waiting, that's the hardest part. But the second hardest is when the claw picks up the animal and then you think you're going to get it and it's in the air and then it hits the side of the chute. Why do they put the side of the chute so high? I can't answer these questions. All I could do is commend you to They Might Be Giants every week. They do a dial a song 
and it debuts here on the gist Tuesday through Sunday. Listen to Dial Song by calling their number 844-387-6962 or keep it here. Yeah, the waiting was pretty hard. I'll concede that. But here it is. College Town. Jeez. 